The, the message that we have this morning, I believe we're going to need the Lord's blessing as we study together, just like we do every morning. And so before we study, how about we bow our heads for prayer and ask for the Lord's blessing. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, what a privilege to gather together as your people. Lord, we thank you so much for the rain outside and for the blessing of watering the earth. And Father, we think of the blessing and the promise of the former rain and the latter rain that you promise you'll send of your Holy Spirit. Father, you know the desperate condition of each one of our hearts, the need that we have of Jesus in a new way. And Father, we just pray that you would fill us this Sabbath, that you would give us clearer glimpses of your character and the beauty of Jesus. And Father, may you help us to know your will more fully for our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, the title of the message is one that I thought about changing because I figured when you saw it, as a group of Christians, you would think, why in the world are you talking to a group of Christians about what it means to be a Christian? I think the, the understanding is that if you're a Christian already, you probably understand what it means to be a Christian. So don't take this message as a talking down message. But there's something that I've been thinking about as you look at Christianity over the years, it seems to me that in the last 2,000 years since the beginning of Christianity, that Christianity has evolved, so to speak, in the last 2,000 years to become something now that it was never intended to be. I'm hearing some people saying it's a little loud. Is that correct? We want to save your ears. We know heaven's coming soon, but not soon enough to lose our hearing. But as you look at the transition of the early church and the first 12 disciples that Jesus raised up, and then you look at modern Christianity today, have any of you ever seen some discrepancies between the two? Let me give you some examples. In Acts chapter 11, we're told that the disciples were first called Christians in what city? Do you remember? In Antioch. Now, the reason why they were called Christians is we're finding out that during that time, Stephen was just stoned and that really raised an upheaval towards the Christians. And now Christians were being persecuted. And so the Christians started to spread throughout the then known world. Well, what would you do as a Christian if one of your leaders was just stoned to death? Well, probably not the same thing these disciples did. They went out throughout the world and still kept sharing their faith with those around them. And as they were sharing their faith and the people identified that these must be followers of Jesus, the people wanted to taunt the believers in Jesus, and so they started calling them Christians or little Christs. Now, the people meant this to be a harmful saying, you know, you look like Jesus. You're a, you're a little Christ. But the Christians thought, well, this, if I have to be called a name, that's probably a good one to be called. If people look at me and I just remind them of Jesus, then that's probably what it should be. And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26, I believe, that that was when the Christians were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, being a Christian, if you look at the etymology of the word, literally means just to be Christ-like or a follower of Jesus, which we understand, and that's a very clear understanding. But what's interesting to note is that those Christians, their faith was so strong in Jesus that it began to move them in the midst of opposition. If some of you have taken the time to read some of the early church fathers or history of Christianity in the first century, some of you might be familiar with the names of Pliny the Younger, or Trajan, and if you're not, I'll show you a little synopsis of what they talked about. 
Trajan was a little governor of a province, and the emperor was Trajan at the time. And Pliny wrote to Trajan, and he began to say, hey, we're having an issue with worship in our governance. This was about 100 AD. He said, you know that we believe in many gods and we offer worship to all sorts of gods, the god of Athena and Nike, but we hold supreme the emperor as God. But the challenge was, is that Christians, how many gods can you worship as a Christian? Okay, just making sure we've read our commandments. You worship one god. And the Christians wouldn't bow to the emperor. And what this uh, governor started telling Emperor Trajan is, you know, the temples are empty for worship because so many people are becoming Christians. Now that's a good problem to have. But the challenge was, is they wanted to regain their control. And so Trajan and Pliny come up with a plan and they say, well, we're going to start an interrogation process of sorts. We're not going to seek out Christians, but when we find them, we're going to take them through some tests. And those who fail these tests, we know that they are Christians and they will be executed. Well, they would take the Christians to the Colosseums when they were caught and they would set up an altar with an image of the emperor and they would tell the Christians, just take a pinch of incense and put it upon the altar and light it in reverence and worship of the emperor and then we won't let the animals come in and take care of you. But Christian after Christian after Christian decided to stay faithful to the Lord instead of bowing to the emperor and there sacrificed their lives for Jesus. And we're told that the blood of martyrs was like seed. And Christianity began to explode and expand. Now with just in, within just a few short years, there's a man who came on the scene by the name of Constantine. You guys are familiar with Constantine? And Constantine was the emperor known as the friend of the Christians or the first Christian emperor. And we'll define that a little bit. But the interesting thing about Constantine is he was really a pagan who became converted to Christianity, if you know his story. He was out fighting a war, and he saw a vision of a cross, and he heard the words, in this name conquer, and he decided that he would become a Christian and have all of his men put um, crosses on their shields, march through a river and be baptized, and then go and conquer in the name of the Lord. But what we find about that time, even though the, the church looked like it was in a pitiful state under persecution, it was even in a worse state when it became popular. And let me explain that. In order to make Christianity popular, Constantine thought, if I can make the religion of the pagans fit into the religion of God, then we all can get together. We solve our problems of emperor worship and all these different things if we can all just come together and worship. So some of the things he started doing was they were used to worshiping the god of Jupiter or the god of Mars or the god of Venus or these different things. But instead now he gave them Christian names as St. Peter and St. Matthew and you know the story to some degree. And before you know it, Christianity, even though the commandment says you shall have one god and number two, you shall not bow down to any images. Now there's images filling the church and the church starts to look less like God's original intent of Christianity and more like the world. Do you get the picture? It continues on and during that time Greek philosophy was popular and one of the things in Greek philosophy which doesn't make sense to me but made sense to all of them is that when you die, you don't die. You're familiar with that teaching? That you have an immortal soul that continues to live beyond the death of the body that dwells in the heavens and all of these different things. And so what they began to do is to find scripture to support these different pagan philosophies and bring that into the church in order to bring an alliance between Christianity and the world. 
Now we can look back at that and you can think those are some foolish Christians. You know, how in the world could they be so deceived and thinking that you could worship idols and still worship God? How could they think that you could bring in paganism and still keep Christianity? But do you think there's a possibility today that Christianity looks a little bit different now than it did when Jesus first started it? Do you think it's possible? I want to share with you a few statistics from a research group known as the Pew Research Group. This is a Christian organization that just researches all different denominations and Christian type things. And they began to ask Christians what doctrines they believed in, what things they thought were important from Scripture. And after I share this list with you, you can tell me whether or not you think Christianity has shifted at all in the last 2,000 years. Is that fair? This is a, a survey done in 2015. Some other parts are from 2016. Notice the first point. It says 86% of Christians think that believing in God is important. Now you might think, well, that's pretty good, 86% of Christians. Now let me just ask you a question. 14% of Christians think it's okay and not important to believe in God? You can go to these links, and I'll share that with you if you're interested to know if this, you can fact check it. 76% are certain there's a God. In other words, there's a quarter of people who come to church on any given weekend who don't even know if God really exists. 67% believe that you need to forgive those who have wronged you. Now, I don't know what happened to that 67%. Uh, what about the others who don't think you need to forgive them? Do you remember where Jesus taught, if a man wrongs you, how many times you forgive them when Peter asked, and what does Jesus say? Seven times 70, right? 490 times symbolically, we could get into all that. But in other words, keep forgiving, right? Keep forgiving those who wrong you. But, well, 33% of people don't think that's important anymore. 67% believe that you need to be honest at all times. In other words, they, can, they think the commandment says something along the lines of don't bear false witness against your neighbor unless it's convenient. And that's what you find. 66% believe that there are many religions leading to eternal life. In other words, you don't have to be a Christian to be saved. I mean, you can be saved in any way. But what does Jesus say in John chapter 14, verse 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, it doesn't say a way or a truth, but the way and the truth. And we see that this is drastically shifting to fit in with modern culture and not ruffle any feathers when you're talking to your friends who don't believe the same way you do. Now here's some interesting ones. 52% believe that you need to help the poor and the needy. Do you remember where Jesus talks about those who make it into the kingdom and those who don't? Yeah. And he starts saying that as much as you've done unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. And those who had done it unto the least, that they entered into the kingdom. And those who had not done it unto the least, they were not in the kingdom and they were shocked. Well, 48% of Christians, almost half, don't believe that you even need to help the poor and needy. 35% believe you should go to church. Now, I don't know how that works. I've read Acts chapter 2, as I, I believe you have as well. And immediately at the start of the church, number one, Jesus went to church as his custom was. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Jesus' example. The early church example was that as many as were baptized, Acts chapter 2, verse 46, were added to the church. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 says, Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhort one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Well, we only see 65% of Christians who don't even think you need to go to church anymore. And if you want to put a hot coal out, just take it away from the rest of the fire. 
few more statistics. 68% believe that religion is very important. Now, I would like this other 32% to go and meet those first century Christians in the Colosseum who have just surrendered, getting ready to surrender their lives for the Lord and say, I understand you believe religion's important, but it's not very important. As martyr after martyr gave up their lives for the faith in Jesus. 38% believe that there are clear standards of right and wrong. The others believe that you use common sense and that you can just, it depends on the situation, whether or not what you should do. Situational ethics, as you can look into later. 32% believe you shouldn't lose your temper. How many of you would like to be married to those people? It's okay to be mad. And you can hear people quote this today. Which, what do they reference? Well, Jesus flipped the tables in the temple, don't they? But it doesn't tell us it's okay to lose your temper. 21% do not believe that Jesus will come again. Can you imagine being a Christian and believing this is it? This is all you have to live for. This life and there's nothing else. How many of you are thankful there's scripture that tells us otherwise? And lastly, only 20% believe that Jesus will come in their lifetime. The rest believe it's in the far distant future. Now, when you look at those things, how many of you, after analyzing just a few of those, I mean, there's pages and pages of this research you could read if you want to get interested and see the depravity in Christianity today, but how many of you think that Christianity has shifted even just a little bit in the last 2,000 years? I think we're even more comfortable with saying that now, right, after seeing these statistics. So the question is, is what was Jesus' original intent for a Christian? When Jesus called Christians together, or well, they weren't called Christians because they weren't called that until Acts chapter 11, but when he called disciples or believers together, what was their purpose? And that's what we're going to look at this morning briefly in Mark chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, and I don't have this on the screen, just the reference so you might want to pull out your Bible so you can see it for yourself, as was beautifully read in the scripture reading. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Now this is Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, after he's done some work and miracles amongst the people. It gives us the setting of how Jesus establishes his first disciples and the early believers. Notice what it says in Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. And he, Jesus, went up on a mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him. Then he appointed twelve, or the King James says, then he ordained twelve, that they might be what? With him, and that he might what? Send them forth to Preach. Now, if you were to continue to read the rest of this little paragraph in Mark chapter 3, you would see that Jesus tells them he will give them power over demons. He's giving them the Spirit of God and the power that rests because Jesus was going to his Father. And he gives them authority on the earth over these troubles that they would be experiencing. But Jesus, in essence, tells them that he's called them for two purposes. And he had called them for purpose number one was what? What was the first thing he said in verse 14? And Jesus ordained 12 that they might be with him. So we'll put that on the screen. Time with God. And what was the second reason that Jesus called them? That he might send them out 
to preach. Now, I don't know if you think of this way, but this sounds kind of like a math equation to me, right? Time with God plus going for God equals the reason why Jesus called them. Do you guys see that in the verses there? Jesus was calling disciples for the purpose of spending time with God and witnessing for God. And if we were to use our term today, that would equal a Christian or a disciple. Now, before we go further, let me ask you a question. Should there be a difference between a Christian and a disciple? There shouldn't be, right? Now, we often kind of think of it maybe different. We might call a Christian someone who comes to church, but a disciple someone who's actively engaged with Jesus. But Jesus in Scripture doesn't give us any differentiation. When he calls disciples, that's all he calls is people who will spend time with him and then he can send forth the preach. Does this make sense? This is what we find. When Jesus calls disciples, he calls them to be with him and to go for him. Now, what were disciples to do or to make? Do you remember the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20? So Jesus wants his disciples to make disciples. And then what do those disciples do? Need to make disciples, right? It's this continuous process all the way down 2,000 years to where we are here today. Praise the Lord. God has called us to be disciples. Now, do you think God has the same call for us as disciples today as he did for the disciples in the first century? Do you think Jesus wants us to spend time with him and to also go for him? Now, is this what we're seeing in the world today? Now, over the next couple weeks, we're going to look at these two things in part. Today, we're just going to be dealing with the time with God. And this is essential to the Christian life, to have the vital connection with Jesus that we so desperately need. How many of you realize you need strength and encouragement and power throughout your week? You need some divine help to get through the challenges, the difficulties, and just a normal day sometimes. And Jesus called us for a specific purpose so that we could spend time with him. Now, I want to look at this briefly because we're in a different context today than the disciples were. When Jesus called the 12 disciples on the mountain that day in Mark chapter 3, Jesus was physically with them. Is that correct? Jesus was standing there in their presence, and so when he wanted them to be with them, we see that desire fulfilled throughout the Gospels. The disciples were continuously going with Jesus wherever he went, on missionary journeys and, and all sorts of various things, boats, sleeping in homes, wherever he was, they were with him. But the question is, how do disciples of Jesus spend time with him today? And I know this sounds elementary, but there's a song that we teach to our daughter, and you probably taught to your children, or it was taught to you as a child, and it's read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll what? Grow, grow, grow. You, anyone heard of that song before? Now the question is this. How do we know that reading the Bible and praying is really what Jesus wants us to do to spend time with the Father? We want to look at a couple things to see this from Scripture. Number one is if we're calling ourselves Christians, that means we're emulating the life of Christ or we're pattering our lives after Him. And in Jesus' life, do we see Him spending intentional times of prayer? Can you think of Mark chapter 1, verse 35, where we see that Jesus woke up and went out a great while before day? Do you remember reading that passage? And he spent that time with his father in prayer. 
And Jesus also read scripture. You think of Luke chapter 4, verse 16, where it talks about him reading scripture in the synagogue and reading from Isaiah in that specific passage. But Jesus also memorized scripture. Can you think of any instances in Jesus' life where you can tell that he memorized scripture? In the wilderness, right? How do we know that he memorized scripture in the wilderness? Well, they didn't really have a pocket Bible of that time, right? They had the scrolls that were hard and cumbersome to carry about. But when, the, when Satan came to him to tempt him, Jesus always said, It is written, right? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Well, Jesus not only memorized scripture, but he understood what he memorized. And if you ever struggle with that, I know I do. You might memorize a passage, but what does it really mean? But when Lucifer comes back with a twisted scripture for the next temptation, Jesus not only knew that scripture, but knew the true application of that scripture and was able to respond again, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And Jesus overcame temptations because he spent time with his father. He was reading and memorizing and understanding scripture. So why would it be any different for his followers today? That makes sense? But how do we know that we can, how do we spend time with Jesus today? I want to see this clearly from Scripture. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 1. Some of you have this passage of Scripture memorized. Powerful verse about the incarnation of Jesus. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Are we there? We're getting there? John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, jump down to verse 14 to understand who this Word is, and some of you are familiar with this. And the Word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What's interesting is that Jesus and his word are so inseparable that he identifies himself as the word of God. Now, is the Bible referred to as the word of God throughout Scripture? You can think of Psalm 119. You familiar with Psalm 119, the longest psalm, and well, actually the longest chapter in all of Scripture. And what the whole psalm is about is the Word of God and the law of God and writing it on our hearts and it being in our minds. And as we meditate upon the Word of God, we're spending time with the Word of God who is Jesus Christ himself. Does that make sense? Jesus also called himself, as we referenced this verse earlier, John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. As we spend time looking at the truths of Scripture, we are able to see who Jesus is in a clearer way. Now, what's interesting to me is how Christians, and I'm not pointing the finger, but this is just once again what the research says from Pew Research Institute, what Christians think about the Bible today. Any of you interested in that? Notice this. 73% of Christians believe that the Bible is the Word of God. 27%, or almost a quarter of Christians, don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God. That's a little bit concerning to me. 45% of Christians read the Bible at least once a week. Now, how many of you eat at least once a week? 
How many of you would like to eat at least a little more than once a week? Now, this is concerning to me for two reasons. Number one, there's 55% of people who don't even read their Bible once a week. Number two, they only do it once a week. You know, we see the example of Jesus who is meditating upon Scripture. You think of the example of Daniel who spent three times a day with the Lord. We think of Paul where he says, I die daily. He needed this daily experience with Jesus. But yet Christians are at best spending one time a week, and that's only 45% of them. Now, if you fall in this category, don't feel like I'm just here to step on your toes. I've been at times in my life where 45%, where um, once a week would have been a very large stretch and a good week if I would have spent that with the Lord. But praise the Lord that He can help us grow into that habit. Amen? But 42% believe that you need to read the Bible. That's 42% of Christians believe you need to read the Bible. Some of them think it might be good to read the Bible, but you don't really need it as a Christian. Well, we're going to look at that in a second. Why do we need time with God? But before we do that, I want to illustrate this point really quick. This is a picture of my wife and I on our wedding day. And imagine on the wedding day, my wife and I are happily married. There's not weird stuff. So when I, when I share this supposed analogy, don't take it out as there's issues. She's smiling now, so you can ask her privately later. But imagine this scenario. Imagine my wife and I are all prepared to get married. We've loved each other. We've prepared. We've invited the people. The paperwork's ready. We're, she's getting ready to change her last name to take my name. And there we are, and she says, hey, I want, I want you to understand, you know that I love you. Yeah, I know you love me. You, you know that I, I really care for you and that you're important to me and I want to marry you. Yeah, I have, I, <laughs> that's why we're here today, right? Yeah, but I want you to understand one thing. Okay, what's that one thing? We can't spend any time together. Okay? Now, as some of you have a little bit of years of experience with marriage and things of that, if you were my parent... Would you be okay with me marrying someone who didn't want to spend any time with me but was willing to take my name? But how many Christians are there who do the same thing to Jesus? I was just studying with a young lady who wanted to be baptized not too long ago. And we had gone through some understandings and, and fundamental beliefs and things of that nature. And she said, I really want to be baptized next weekend because it's a special weekend and whatever else. I said, oh, wonderful. We'd love to, you know, we've been preparing for this. Let's just talk about a few things. I said, you know, what's your time with Jesus like? Do you spend time with Jesus? Well, I mean, I don't spend time with Jesus, but I want to be baptized. I said, well, how does that work? Because a baptism is kind of like a marriage to Jesus. Would you agree? I mean, that's the imagery given in Scripture. So you want to get married to someone you don't know. I said, as a pastor, I can't marry you to someone who you don't know, and I can't baptize you to a Jesus who you don't spend time with. But I wonder how we get this same thing with Jesus. Sometimes we think reading our Bible is just a checklist thing, but really, it's an encounter with the living Christ. And it's an encounter with Jesus who gave his life for us and wanted to give everything and wants to reveal the truths that set us free. But too often, it's neglected. Now, moving forward quickly for the sake of time, I don't know what time you're used to getting out of church, but I can guarantee it'll be close to that time today. John chapter 3 is what we're going to look at. The question that we've seen is, number one, we should spend time with Jesus through his word, right? That's what we see Jesus calling us to do as Christians. If we want to know Jesus, it comes through an encounter with his word and with truth. But why do we need it? Have you ever had those questions? I mean, really, I've read the Bible stories. 
I've read the Bible all the way through multiple times. Why do I really need to read the Bible? Notice what this says, and this is going to be a little bit of a, a detour, but it'll make perfect sense in just a moment. John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus, and Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, how many of you think that being born again is a fairly important thing? I mean, Jesus says, if you're not born again, what happens? You're not going to see the kingdom of God. Now, how many of us want to see the kingdom of God? I would imagine that's why we're here this morning, right? We want to know Jesus. We want to be ready for his soon return. But Jesus says, hey, look, if you're not born again, you can't see the kingdom. Well, then the question is, what does the Bible tell us is the only way that we can be born again? Now, there's popular understanding of how you're born again today. Some people think it's an exciting emotion. There's things that symbolize our born-again experience, absolutely. And Jesus goes on to talk to Nicodemus about that, right? With the baptism of the water and the Spirit. But notice this clear passage from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. 1 Peter 1, verse 23, it's the 1, 2, 3, the beginning steps of Christianity. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. And notice what the Apostle says is the only way that we can be born again. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. And Peter says, Having been born again, which is the issue we're looking at, not of corruptible seed, but of what? Incorruptible. In other words, something that can't be diminished. Through the word of God, which lives and abides, how long? forever. How, according to this verse, how is someone born again? Through the Word of God. Now, should this be surprising to a Christian? How was this world created in the beginning? By the Word of God. I feel sorry for the people who don't believe in a literal creation anymore. They take away the power of God, but it's the power of Jesus' Word that created the world in the first place. So how is it that Jesus can recreate in me a new heart? How can he make me born again? What does the Bible tell us? It's through that same powerful Word of God. Now let me ask you a question. After reading that, how many of you think we need the Bible? We need to be reading the Word of God. It's what renews my heart. It's what changes me into his image that we'll look at in a moment. The Bible is the power of God. Now Peter tells us, or Paul tells us, sorry, that we need to have an experience with God how often? Daily. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that Paul dies daily. What does it mean that he dies? His old man is put away. He's resurrected to newness of life in Jesus. He's born again. We need to have this daily born again encounter with Jesus. Yes, moment by moment and on a daily basis. Time in God's word is what renews us. Now, the Bible authors give us a little bit of an explanation of how this works. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul explains how this transformation, born-again process happens through the Word of God. And notice what it says, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. How is it that we're born again through the Word of God? How does this miraculous encounter with Jesus take place? Notice what he says. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to what? 
glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now what Paul's saying here is as you look at the glory, which we could take time to study through Exodus chapter 3 and 4, when Moses asked for, or sorry, Exodus chapter 33 and 34, where Moses asked for God to show him his glory. Do you remember that passage? And God says, I'll show you my glory. And he declares the name of the Lord before him and says, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. And as God declares his glory or his character to Moses, Moses veils his face as he sees the glory of the Father. As we see the glory of the character of Jesus in his word, we can't help but be changed into the same character. And I don't know about you, but that's good news. God can change me from being unloving to loving as I look at his loving image. God can take me from confusion to truth as I look at his truth. God can help me to become the man or the woman that he wants me to be. Not me, but you, that he wants you to be. And God can help us to become like him as we spend time with him. Now, if you were the devil and you knew that Christians were born again through the word of God, what would be the one thing that you tried to get the Christians not to do? Maybe not study the Word of God, right? Now look at this passage from Great Controversy, page 519. It says, Satan well knows that all whom he can lead to neglect prayer and the searching of the Scriptures will be overcome by his attacks. Now that's interesting. It doesn't say might be or potentially be or have the possibility of being, but it's just they will be. Now, you might think, well, that's just that person's opinion. But what does Psalm 119 verse 11 say? Thy word have I hid in my what? Heart that I might not sin against you. So if your word, if God's word is not in our heart, what are we going to do? Sin against him. And so Satan knows this and he looks and he says, therefore, he invents every possible device to engross the mind. Have you guys noted, noticed in your own life that it seems like everything spins faster and faster and Satan just keeps thinking of new ways to distract us and absorb our time? Some, some of it come in the form of literal devices, right? You can think of things that pull you away or your phone rings or your computer dings during prayer and worship and it pulls you away from Jesus. But sometimes it's just because we haven't prioritized and put our time in with the Lord. But notice this beautiful promise. It's from Steps to Christ, page 90, and it helps us to understand the beauty of what God wants us to do through His Word. It says, There is nothing more calculated to strengthen the intellect than the study of the Scriptures. No other book is so potent to elevate the thoughts, to give vigor to the faculties, as the broad ennobling truths of the Bible. If God's word were studied as it should be, men would have a breadth of mind, a nobility of character, and a stability of purpose rarely seen in these times. Now those are beautiful promises, are they not? How many of us would like a stability of purpose? Anyone ever find that it's sometimes easy to get derailed or discouraged? A nobility of character? When moral decline is on the rise, God's people can have a character that will stand? These are the promises that God give us if we spend time with Him in His Word. Now, how many of you appreciate when someone tells us that we need a little improvement in an area, that they actually help give us some practical suggestions of how to make those improvements? 
I remember when I first started having a burden to spend time with the Lord, I felt so confused. I'm just being honest. And I know it's not rocket science. I think it was just Satan warring for my soul. But I remember I'd wake up and think, I don't know how to read the Bible. I mean, I'm just being honest. I don't get it. There's names that I don't know how to pronounce and places I have no clue where they are and concepts that make no sense to me and parables that like, why can't you just speak plainly, right? And you start looking through Scripture and you're thinking, Lord, how am I going to be saved? And I remember clinging my Bible in the morning and literally just squeezing it. I still had that binding at home and the binding is just ripped off from sweat in my hands and saying, Lord, please, if you don't reveal yourself to me in Scripture, I'm going to be lost. If you don't do something, I can't have the experience with you that you want me to. And it's by the grace of God that he promises that he, the spirit of truth, will what? Guide us into all truth. Jesus promises not to leave us alone. And if anyone lacks wisdom, that he tells us we can ask of him who gives to us liberally and doesn't withhold it. So we have the promises of God that God is on our side as we study. But here's a couple practical steps and we're going to move through it quickly just for the sake of not repeating something you know and also getting you to lunch so you're not so irritated at the preacher. Number one, have a place for your time with God. Now, I used to not think this was important until I got shipped off to college and realized my roommate had a different schedule than my own. And I needed to find a place with the Lord where I wouldn't be interrupted. Then I got married and realized that, well, that can create some challenges for, you know, it's wonderful, but challenges for keeping your own private time. And then I had a child, and I thought that was difficult, and we just added a second, and that becomes even more. And that's really helped emphasize this point in my mind, that if we don't have a specific, quiet place with God in prayer and in the study of his word, it's easily, easy to get distracted. Have any of you realized that? Okay, it's not just, not just me. So have a place for prayer and the study of the word. Number two, have a time. Have any of you ever started one of those New Year's resolutions? Lord, I'm going to spend time with you. And then you think, well, what am I going to do? Well, just whenever I have the time, I'm going to, I'm going to take the time. Now, let me ask you a question. For those of you, how many of you have extra time every day that you're just wondering what in the world you can do with? It's, it's very rare, right? And even when you do have extra time, it's easy to get caught up in something else. And so unless we schedule a specific time with God, it's so easy for everything else just to run over that space. Number three, we need a plan. There's nothing more discouraging than going to the right place, the place you've set aside for devotions, at the right time, but having no clue what to do. And some of you might have been in that experience before. There have been mornings where I slept in extra just because I wanted to miss that time because I didn't know what I was going to do for that time. I'm just being honest with you. I mean, this is a reality. And you might think, well, I've read that story before and that book, and I don't know anything that interests me. And I mean, that's just another story. And we need a plan. And if teachers can take enough time and thought to put together a syllabus for each class, maybe we can take a little thought about training ourselves in the Word of God. Let me suggest four plans that have been a blessing to me, um, and I'll explain to you a little bit. And they're nothing brand new. Oh, you've probably heard of them before, but just a reminder of things you can try. And this is, there's a whole host of things that we can talk about later. Number one, there's the read through the Bible in a year plan. How many of you have started that and then gotten off track in January? Anyone? I, I mean, every time it happens to me, I'm off track. It's a great thing, though. Have you, have you seen those lists that tell you how many chapters you need to read a day, how to get through it? What I like to do, even if I'm not going to read it through in a year, have that list so I can mark off just what I'm reading. Number one, it shows you success. And number two, it just helps keep you accountable. 
It's hard for me to read four, I think four to five chapters a day as their suggested normal amount. That's a little bit challenging for me to really grasp the meaning, but some people like to do that just to get a survey of scripture and then study something else. So that can be helpful. Number two is read the spirit of prophecy in the corresponding passages of scripture. I don't know if you guys have gone through the Conflict of the Ages series with the Bible before or not, but I think that was my favorite thing to do. You start in Patriarchs and Prophets and go to Prophets and Kings and Desire of Ages, Acts of the Apostles, Great Controversy. And what's wonderful about these books, I brought a little paperback copy, and you know this well most likely, is that at the beginning of the chapters it shows you right where it's referencing from Scripture, right? So you can read the corresponding passage maybe one day, then read some of the chapter the next day, depending on how much time you have, you might be able to do both. But this is a great way to help us not just read Scripture, but also to understand it and get an insight that God has given. Number three, study with a concordance. Everyone knows what a concordance is, right? I'm, you look like good, long-life long Christians who know all these things, but I'm just repeating them maybe for my own benefit. But a concordance is great for topical study. Have any of you ever had a specific area in your life where you feel like the Lord's putting his finger on it that you're struggling with? Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's lying, maybe it's bitterness, maybe it's all these things. Why not take a concordance if you're struggling with anger, for example, and look up every reference to anger, and then also look up maybe every reference to patience. And start thinking, Lord, man, and be praying as you're reading, Lord, give me the patience that you're describing here. Help me to see the results of anger that I'm seeing through Scripture, and I don't want this in my life. Lord, give me freedom from these things. It's also great for doctrinal questions if you want to understand more about the sanctuary or what is the last day judgment message or what is the three angels messages about. Using a concordance can be very helpful. And lastly, this is my personal favorite and one that I typically go back to, is pick a book of the Bible. Now, I would pick like a short book. The first book I did it with was Ephesians. Um, one of the epistles is kind of nice just because they're not super long. And what you do is kind of a varied study. You might read through the whole book quickly to get an overview. And then you might go back and start reading one chapter more in depth multiple times. So you're kind of getting the flow of thought, especially if you're reading Paul. You realize you might need to read it 35 times to get the idea. But then you go back through, and each morning you're just spending time memorizing one verse. If you can get to more than that, do more than that. But one to two verses, and as you're memorizing it, have any of you realized that when you memorize, the Lord brings things to your mind that you never thought, even though you read that passage so many times? So as those thoughts come to your mind, just sit there with a little piece of paper. I would just fold a 8.5 by 11 sheet in half, and then I would label it for each verse, write down what the thoughts were that the Lord brought to my mind. And at the end of the week, you can review that, and it's almost like a Bible study. If you're ever called upon to preach... Well, praise the Lord. We know we'll have a bunch of ready people in the church. Or if you're ever called to share with someone, just an encouraging thought, or to encourage yourself to know that God is revealing things to you. It's been a powerful message, uh, method as I've studied through it that way. Now, here's the blessing. I want to leave you with an encouraging promise. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. These are the words of Jesus as we close. Last passage. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? righteousness, for they might be filled. Is that what it says? For they shall be filled. My friends, has God put a desire in your heart to know him more? I don't know about you, but as I see the world increasingly getting worse, and I see my need for Jesus, and I see the beauty of his character, it makes me want to know him more. 
But sometimes we can think, Lord, I want to know you, but how can I know you more? If the Lord's given you that desire, if you have the burden to know righteousness, and you're hungering and you're thirsting for it, He gives us the promise that we will be filled. Well, I don't know about you, but as I was preparing for this message and studying through these scriptures, I was reminded of my need to make a more intentional effort to protect my time with the Lord. And there's some of you here this morning who I'm sure are having wonderful times with the Lord, and it's been bountiful blessings that have come out, and you could share and testify about that. And there's others who might have become discouraged or maybe not ever started. I don't, I don't know where you're at. But how many of you this morning say, Lord, I realize that studying your word is important. I realize that it's what renews my heart. It's what makes your image reproduced into me. And Father, it's my desire by your grace to give intentional, thoughtful effort into spending time with you this coming week. Is that your desire? Lord, help me to have this. Even give me the desire if I don't have it. Lord, help us to be Christians who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, it's truly our prayer, as the song said, that more about Jesus we could learn. Father, we think about the grace you've shown towards us, the mercy that we experience from you on a daily basis. Father, we want to experience more of the beauty of your character. We want to see it clearly through your word as the delusions about who you are are becoming so rampant in this world. Father, help us to see by your grace your true character and to be changed into your image. Father, we surrender our hearts to you. We pray for your spirit to encourage us, to remind us of the appointment that we have with you. Father, give us the conviction to spend the time in preparation for the time with you that is necessary. Lord, give us the strength by your grace to make it there and to learn. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.